0: We are now going to begin a series in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. This is a long song, the longest of all the songs or psalms in the book of Psalms, devoted to the Word of God. Depending on how you look at it, almost every verse, if not every verse in this psalm, has something to say about the Word of God. How wonderful it is, how beautiful it is, and how necessary it is for us. This will be uh, our attention this morning, and it will be specifically in verses 1 to 8. Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness, they walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts, that we should keep them diligently, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us this kind of heart and desire the desire to please you and the, the desire to know your word and the desire, Lord, to be faithful in all things. Would you help us to understand what these words mean and enable us to conform our minds, conform all of our actions to your will? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we come to Psalm 119, one of the first things that come to mind as a, as a preliminary point of explanation I will say the prophet, or the holy prophet or David, I will use those terms even though the psalm itself does not have a superscription that says a psalm of David. I will do so in the tradition of the apostles because the apostles a couple of times when they quote psalm 2 and when they quote psalm 95 in the English and in the Hebrew original of the, of the psalms it does not actually say psalm of David. But in Acts chapter 2, uh, and Acts chapter 4, and Acts chapter 13, where certain psalms are quoted, the apostles and the disciples say, David said, the prophet David said, so forth like that. I do so because sometimes we have a tendency to hear the phrase, the author says, or something of that nature. The author says. When we use those kinds of terms, it actually diminishes the importance and the authority of the Word of God. It also diminishes the inspiration of the Word of God, because we have authors who write human books. We have writers who write human books. And so I avoid that terminology intentionally. I do that because I have seen what has happened in churches and in the academic world, where there are professors who use those terms, because if you got them into a corner in a safe place, they would actually admit to you they don't believe the Bible is prophetic, they don't believe the Bible is inspired, and that's why they say author says, and text says, and the writer says. That's really why they use those terms. I seek to avoid any of that ambiguity and to remind us that this is the authoritative word of God. Therefore, I will say the prophet, or the holy prophet, or David. I will use those kinds of terms. Another thing we need to keep in mind when we come to Psalm 119. As well, not only Psalm 119, but all the Psalms, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, and other poetic books and other poetic parts of the Old Testament. These parts, I think many of us, we naturally know, it's self-evident that these are relevant for us today. They are self-relevant or self-evident that they are relevant to us. For example, there are no animal sacrifices in these books. There's no talk of the temple rituals in these books. Nothing of that sort. No, no, nothing, nothing even regarding the dietary laws of the Old Testament or any of the other kinds of laws that we find in the law of Moses. And so it should be self-evident that what we find here is applicable and intended to be for our Christian life not only after the coming of Christ, but we can see here that these are relevant things that were applicable to in the time of David, who lived 1,000 years before Christ, or 3,000 years from us. He lived that long ago, and yet he found, David and others, other saints of the Old Testament, found these truths to be relevant to their life. Because God intended it to be that way. He intended these moral and spiritual truths to be relevant to every generation from Adam until the end of the world. That is, anyone who understands the gospel, anyone who believes in Christ, anyone who is saved from his sins ought to have this mindset. The mindset of David was the mindset of Moses, was the mindset of Abraham and Adam after his conversion. All of these men of God and women of God throughout the Bible had this mindset. We ought to have the same. We ought to have the same mindset that is here. Uh, A third point of clarification is... Here, there is a lot about obedience. There's a lot about a desire to please God and know God better and better every day. He is writing from the perspective of a believer. He's not talking about obedience for salvation... He's not talking about good works, works righteousness. He's not talking about legalism, that is finding human ways and human inventions in ways that will please God, supposedly please God. This is not about man-made religion. It's not about just tightening your belt and just being a better person or being a good person or anything like that. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the Christian life. He's talking about those people who already have a changed heart, who were in darkness, now they are in the light, who used to have a hard heart, now they have a tender heart towards the things of God. In other words, the Christian life is a life of obedience to God. Yes, when we are converted, that happens singularly from God. It happens by God causing our change. He gives us faith. He gives us repentance. He regenerates our heart. The dead heart, he makes alive. And all of this is true, and it happens from God, from heaven, to us. This is called monergism. It is a single work of God. However, the Christian life is not monergistic, it is synergistic, that is, there is obedience from man expected and required as a manifestation of that true changed heart, a true changed heart, born again heart, that heart will be tender for the things of God, it will desire the word of God, it will desire to know what is God's will, what is God's will for me today, in everything that we think of, in all of our values. We know that we used to value and practice certain things, and now we say, what does God think about that? I have to find out. I want to read the Bible. I I have this insatiable appetite for the Word of God and the knowledge of God. I want to know what He says and what He thinks about everything. I want to please Him. I don't want to be His enemy anymore. I want to be His friend. I want to be His child. I want to be... In his family, as one who has a a good and reconciled relationship with his Heavenly Father. This is the kind of attitude we ought to have as a believer in Christ. And it should happen the moment of our conversion. From that point on, it does not happen perfectly, but it will happen significantly. We will never be perfect in our Christian life, but we will have a change. People can tell we used to have the deeds of the flesh now we have the fruit of the spirit they will be able to tell you will be able to tell and the, that's why these passages are in the bible to give us encouragement to help us to persevere to ma- make us look at the goal straight ahead and focus on christ for the rest of our life until we see him face to face this is the attitude that the prophet david has he has this attitude that he's looking forward and he wants to know god more and he knows that the means of knowing god is the Word of God. That which saved us from our sins is that which sanctifies us from daily sin. The Word of God, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce a child of God. The Spirit uses the Word to produce a child of God. We need to hear the Word of Christ, the Bible, the Gospel, which is explained in 10,000 ways from Genesis to Revelation. This is what we need. But not only do we need it to be saved from sin, To escape the wrath of God in the day of judgment. The punishments on the day of judgment. But we need it for everyday life. The Spirit of God also uses the Word of God to sanctify, to make holy, to to grow up in the faith, that child of God. This is the means that God has. The Spirit and the Word. Our focus here. Let's see. The mind of the prophet. The the holy man of God. This saint. Who knows? Who knows? by His inspired words from the Holy Spirit, what it means to relate to God. Verse 1. Actually, verses 1 and 2 will use this phrase, how blessed. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. He, off the bat, immediately expresses what it means to be blessed. What it means to be blessed. From Psalm 1, the very first verse of Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This expression, blessedness, is this not what all people desire? Do not all people desire peace? Do they not desire happiness? Do they not desire harmony and comfort and encouragement in their life? The difference, however, is that the people of the world seek it by fleshly and carnal means. The people of the world seek it by gratification of their impulses. Every ambition, every desire, every evil uh, thought, every thought of covetousness and greed, that's what they have. And it manifests itself in so many ways. And they think, they are so blind to the fact that they think that those things will make them happy. Those things will give them satisfaction. Those things will fill that empty hole that we all have inside of us, outside of Christ. They think that those things are what life consists of. However, here, here he says, how blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. The opposite, the new heart, the changed heart, the heart that has been enlightened by God, that heart says that those who are keeping their way blameless qualifying it by saying, who walk in the law of the Lord. To keep your way blameless is to walk in the law of the Lord. This is where true contentment, this is where true happiness resides, in keeping a blameless way in walking in the law of God. He knows. When he says blameless, he does not mean that he is uh, perfect. What he means is that he is not living A hypocritical life. He's not pursuing all those things he used to pursue as an unbeliever. He's not living that way anymore. He's living a way that is complete, that's whole, that is more consistent, significantly consistent with the Bible, with the Word of God, not the way he used to be. This is what it means to be blameless. And to be blameless equates to walking or living in the law of the Lord. There are many paths and bypaths of, of life. There are many ways that we can be enticed and entrapped, either on the right or on the left. But what we need is the straight path of Christ, the way of Christ. Is, did not Christ say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the way. He is the straight way. And when we are following His word, we are on that straight path. But when we don't, we go to the right or to the left, we're not walking in the law of the Lord. In, in other words, in, other, in every way, we can avoid legalism, that is, following the traditions of men, going too far or, or going on the right, or if we go on the left, we are practicing licentiousness or so-called Christian liberty. We're following Christian freedom to the, to the extent that it makes us practice sin. And we say, oh, well, it's, it's up to God. If God wants to change me, He'll change me. Uh, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to repent of any sin because I'm saved by grace and it's all of grace. So there's nothing more for me to do. I'm just going to be happy. I'm going to twiddle my thumbs, sit in front of the TV and just be whatever I want to be. That's all I want to do. No, that's not the case at all. Stay on the straight path, not to the right or to the left. And when he says this word, law of the Lord, there are in all of us Uh, There's a certain amount of disdain and uh, repulsion that we have when we hear the word law. We don't want God, naturally speaking, we don't want God telling us what to do. Who wants God always telling us what to do? The natural man, the unconverted man with the hard heart, he doesn't want that at all. He doesn't want that at all. And then, as Christians, oftentimes, we, we get into a, a Christian c- culture where everything is easy and breezy and nothing is about doing God's will. We get into that frame of mind. And some churches, they talk about this as though this is good and right. When actually, God has a law. He has rules and regulations on how to govern our life. And He has them here for our good. How could we imagine, especially as believers, how could we imagine that the judge of heaven who knows all the laws and who has has actually ordained all the laws for us, that he, being good and righteous, why would he enact any law for us that would harm us, that would destroy us, that would take away any kind of good pleasures and delights in the things of God? Why would that thought even come into our mind? It should not. It should not. The moment that kind of thought does come into our mind, we ought to identify it as being worldly, fleshly, and devilish. It does not come from God. Because all that God has as a law is meant to regulate us to live according to His will. Isn't this what Jesus meant when Jesus spoke about coming to Him? In Matthew chapter 11... Jesus spoke of coming to him and having this kind of delight in him. He says, Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light." Isn't that a perplexing statement? For my yoke is easy and my load is light. The flesh thinks doing God's will is a heavy burden. It's cumbersome. I don't want it. I don't need it. I want nothing to do with it. I'm going to run in the opposite direction. That's what the flesh says about God and the word of God, the laws of God. That's what the flesh says. But Jesus says... That his yoke is easy and his load is light. The real burden, the real weight, is that which is natural and corrupt and demonic. That which is worldly is that which is the real burden on us. That's what's bringing us down. That's what's making our life miserable. That's what's giving us no hope. But in Christ, we have hope. And we have this delight to do the will of God. Now, Jesus said, He who commits sin is the slave of sin. No, None of us want to be a slave of any human master. We don't even want to be a slave of ourselves or of our flesh. If we're thinking straight, we don't want that. We don't want to be a slave of any, anything, any substance, any person. We don't want that. We don't naturally want that. We pursue it because we have some kind of blurred vision and we think that it's going to satisfy us. But naturally, if we were thinking straight, we wouldn't want it. Well, who is free? Who is not a slave of anyone but God? Now, if God is not a slave of anyone, if God is free, and He does according to His will all the time, shouldn't we want to join our will to His will? This is why Jesus said... But if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Because when we give up slavery to sin and we seek to know Christ, to know God through Christ, we seek to do that, we become joined or united with Christ in a desire to do the will of God. And the more we do the will of God, the greater freedom we have. And when there's freedom, there's peace. When there's freedom, there's happiness, there's contentment, there's encouragement, there's comfort. There is this power to sustain us from day to day. Knowing that we are in the will of God, we are free because we are doing His will. God is a slave to no one. Therefore, let's unite our will to the will of God. Verse 2. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. Blessing is further described in those who observe his testimonies who seek him with all their heart. Observation is not simply looking. In the Bible, observation is a synonym for keeping or obedience, for actually doing it. There are many ways in which the Bible describes doing the will of God. Observing it, seeking Him, walking in His path. And in this psalm, many ways are described to describe doing whatever God says. To doing His will. And the Word of God is called by many names. We saw in verse 1, it's called a way. It's called the law. In verse 2, it's called testimonies. And other verses will describe about 10 different ways in this psalm. ...that the Word of God is described. Word, sayings, precepts, judgments, commandments, law... ...all of these are different ways to describe the Word of God... ...because as synonyms of the Word of God... ...they describe aspects of what God considers... ...or what God wants us to understand about His Word. In this case, the testimony... ...God is testifying... ...legal language again... ...God is testifying to the way of righteousness... The way of righteousness. We speak of a criminal being righteous or exonerated... When he lived according to the law... And the judge has determined that... And he was accused falsely of being a criminal. But if he is guilty, then he's a criminal, he's wicked... And he deserves punishment. So here God tells us... The way to maintain this righteousness... Not to keep your salvation by your works. That's not what the scripture means. But to produce this righteousness based on true faith. Is by the testimony of God. Let God be found the one. Let us find him to be the one. Who teaches us and shows us the true way. The way of righteousness. Let God be found true. Though every man a liar. When we bring God and man into the courtroom. May it never be. That we take man's word, we take man's laws, we take man's testimony, we always take God's testimony. This should drive us to ask ourselves and everyone else, What does God testify on this subject? What does God testify on that topic? What does God testify on that issue? What does He testify? What does He say is the righteous way? And how should we do this? We should seek Him with all our heart. Seek Him with all our heart, with a whole heart, not half-heartedly, not as a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways, as James 1.8 says. Not like that. We ought to do it with full conviction, with the whole heart, being fully convinced that this Bible is the Word of God and this is the way to know Him. We should pursue it that way, with a complete and full heart. This, by the way, in verse 2, shows very clearly that the saints of the Old Testament had a changed heart. The circumcision of the heart, figuratively speaking, or the tender heart, the new heart that is changed from having been a stony heart to a heart of flesh, that change is not something that happens only after the day of Pentecost. It does not happen only after the day of Pentecost and until the rapture of the church. It's not something like that. Not that way at all. Whoever is saved from the beginning of the world till the end of the world has to have a changed heart and that changed heart can only come about by the miraculous power of God who changes a dead person or a stony hearted person into a person who's alive, risen from the dead spiritually, who has been transformed from the inside out. This is what David is expressing. Who seek him with all their heart. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his contemporaries. Because obviously when he writes these words as a prophet of God. He's preaching and teaching other people to do the same. He's doing that. We know that um, he did so with Solomon and with many others. He was teaching them the word of God. 1st Kings chapter 2. Explains that he gave a charge to Solomon. The word of God to keep the laws and commandments of God. He did so. For himself, he did so for others. In the old, and now we need the same in the new. With a complete heart, pursuing God. Verse 3. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. They do no unrighteousness. Now this is a stunning statement. This is amazing. They do no unrighteousness. You may recall that John the Apostle said similar words in First John Chapter 3. In First John chapter 3, he says... Verse 7. Right, we'll start at verse 6. First John 3, 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning... The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that He might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed, God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother." The Apostle John is saying the same as the prophet David. They're both saying that no one who is born of God practices sin. They do no unrighteousness. There is a difference between this assertion and what we used to be. When we were outside of Christ, even the worldly good things we did, we all went to our employers, we earned a living, we fed our families. These are, you know horizontal and human sense, these are good things. So they are good in that way but they're not good in terms of merit and salvation and good works before God. Because whatever is not from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Those things were not good. They were all evil. Now we also practice wickedness. We had little guilt, little remorse when we did wickedness in the past before Christ before our conversion we loved it we did whatever we pleased we didn't ha- we weren't mindful of the things of God but now now that we belong to Christ now that we are in Christ now that we are born of God we have a new heart now we don't do unrighteousness we don't practice sin by this he means that we don't have a love of sin we don't intentionally and deliberately Go out and practice sin. We don't love it. What we want to do now. Is struggle against it. We want to fight against it. We don't want to practice it. We know that it displeases God. We know that it's bad for us. We know that we need to walk according to the law of Christ. We know that. And we don't want to practice it. This is what he means. By they don't do uh, any unrighteousness. They don't do unrighteousness. Instead they do righteousness they are characterized by bearing fruit they're not characterized by the deeds of the flesh but the fruit of the spirit verse 4 you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently god ordained his precepts precepts give us wisdom and insight into how to live here is another aspect another synonym for the word of God to know and do God's will is explained here as a precept we follow many precepts in life many axioms many uh, aphorisms we, we know and we, we repeat to one another but the ones that come from the Bible the precepts of the Bible that tell us what the God of heaven thinks what the true wisdom is what true insight and understanding is on everything comes from him and he's ordained them he has appointed them He put them here for a purpose. He didn't put them here in vain. He didn't put them here for them to be neglected, for them to collect dust, for, for them to be ignored. He didn't even put them here for us to slice and dice and chop and butcher as we please, which many people do. Some people do it literally by excising parts of the Bible and others do it practically by ignoring parts of the Bible. No, we need the whole counsel of God. We need the whole of the scriptures because God has ordained them. He's placed them here and put them here for a purpose. And what's the purpose? That we should keep them diligently. That we should keep them diligently. In order that, here's the purpose. The purpose is to keep them. Or as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love God, then we will keep or obey His commandments. But look again at how He expresses it. Keep them diligently. We used to go headlong and headstrong into our sin. We used to love it. We didn't care. We used to squander our time. We used to squander our money. We used to squander our bodies. We used to take advantage and exploit other people. We used to do whatever it, it took... To go headlong and headstrong into our sin. But now what should it be? Now it should be that we keep God's word diligently. We are very eager. We have a zeal. We have a a passion for the word of God and the things of God that outdoes any of our sin of the past. That outdoes it because it has eternal benefit. And it saves souls. It saves our souls. And it saves the souls of others. When we pursue God's word diligently. This is why often we will see in new converts. A new hunger and thirst for righteousness. New converts have a thirst for the word of God. And they're thinking and talking about the word of God to other people. But it should not be only with them. It should also be with those who have been 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years in the faith. It should be this way in all of us until our last breath. There's nothing more, uh, nothing more encouraging than to see that there are people who are 60 and 70 and 80 years old who came to the faith in their y- younger days, but they still have this diligent, insatiable appetite for the Word of God. They're thinking about God. They talk about God. They encourage others to know God They preach the gospel wherever they go. They do whatever they can. They pray and they live a life accordingly. They do everything that's in their power to please God. This is what we need. We not only need those who are 10 years old who have this, but we need those who are 100 years old who also have this. This is what we all have to be about, to diligently keep his word. Verse 5. Now he expresses a longing. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. From this verse, we know that in verse 3, David is not talking about perfectionism. He's not talking about sinless perfection. Because verse 5, he acknowledges the fact that though he's a believer, though he knows and loves God... That all of his ways are not perfectly keeping God's statutes. They're not perfectly keeping his word. So he expresses a longing. This longing should be in all of us. This longing was in the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. This longing to have all of his ways established to keep God's statutes. He wants to. He longs for it. He wants to promote godliness in himself and to please God In every single way. This fundamental desire. This basic desire. We know it's according to the word of God. It's according to the will of God. Then God will grant it. Isn't that what the apostle said in 1 John 5.14? If we pray and it is according to his will. He hears us. If we pray and it is according to his will. He hears us. So, He will hear prayers like that. He desires that. He desires for us to overcome our sin. But it starts with that desire. We need to have that desire, and we need to be around other people who have that desire, who are always wanting this for themselves and for everyone around them, to help one another and to pray for one another, to have this kind of passionate desire to have every part of life conform to Christ. But what is his goal? Look also. He has a further goal. Not just to obey, which is good. But verse 6. Then, if his ways are established to keep God's statutes. Verse 6. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. When he reflects upon the word of God. When he reflects upon his own life. Then he will not be ashamed. Now this may have different implications. Maybe all of these implications. May be true in this statement. When he looks upon his life now. His Christian life now. For example when he reads. The deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5. 16 to 26. When he reads that, that compilation. Of sins and that compilation of fruit. The fruit of the spirit. When he reads that. He says. Oh Yes. I have delight. I, I don't have shame. I used to be like this this sinless. I used to be like that. But I'm not like that anymore. Yes, I still struggle with certain ones of those. But I'm not like that anymore. I'm pro- doing this. I'm producing this. We have better uh, relationship in our, in, in our family. My friends. My, my attitude at work is different. Everything has is, is changed. The, what I think of church and the people at church. Those things are beginning to change. I see that in the fruit of the Spirit. This is why he says that he may not be ashamed. He doesn't want to look at that list and say, Oh no, I am miserable. I am wretched. I am just the way I used to be. But not only that, but on the day of judgment, in 1 John, John says that when we keep his commandments, we will not shrink back away from him in shame. We will not shrink back away from Him in shame. That is, on the day of judgment, God will declare us righteous in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, because God looks at us in Christ. And there will be no shame. The wicked people of the world will shrink back to destruction. They will shrink back and fall back into destruction. They will be ashamed. But not us. There's no humiliation. There's no shame on that day. Because we are in Christ. And Christ will say. Well done good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. This is what he will say. He'll have words of peace and hope. And reconciliation for us. Not words of shame. Verse 7. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn... Your righteous judgments. When he learns of God's righteous judgments, not wicked, but righteous judgments, his judgments are anything God has sentenced, anything God has declared to be good and right, anything he has determined, called here his judgments. God has made a judgment as to the right way and the wrong way, the way of God and the way of Satan. He has made judgments on that. Whatever he has said is righteous, he declares. So, therefore, we cannot say God's way is wicked. The skeptics and the critics of the world, when they come to the, the Bible, when they approach the Bible, they are nitpicking fault finders. They're looking here and they're looking there. And they're looking for ways to undermine Scripture. They're looking for ways to say, that's evil, that's wrong, as though they are morally superior. Than the creator of the heavens and the earth. That they are morally superior. To the one who gave them a conscience. To determine the difference between right and wrong. That's how wicked they are. But they have the audacity. To impugn the judgments of God. The word of God. And to call them wicked. And to call, call the word of God wicked. And call themselves righteous. But no. But no. One who has an upright heart. Now. Now. One who has a changed heart. One who has been born again. What does he do? Verse 7. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. We give thanks to God. We give thanks for His word. That He has immense wisdom. His understanding is inscrutable. Unfathomable, His wisdom his judgments, his understanding. That's the way God is. That's the way we should consider his word and then praise God for it. Praise him for it. Give thanks with uprightness of heart. This is true in many cases in our life. Many times when we read scripture, we might think, how is that good? Or how is that right? How is that fair? Or how is that just? We have those thoughts. We have those thoughts when we read the Bible. But what we should do is say, Let God be found true, though every man a liar. We ought to halt and stop at that point when we have those skeptical thoughts. Sometimes we ask them sincerely, and that's fine and good. But when we ask them with skepticism, just like the world, we ought to stop then and there and say, I don't know. I am finite. I am ignorant. I don't know the best way. Lord, show me the way. Help me to understand why it is that you put this in your word. Help me to understand why you put this in your word. And sometimes he'll answer it sooner than later. Sometimes it's later. Sometimes it will take a long time for you to investigate, to study, to read books, to consult others, to do whatever it takes to understand why is that there in the Bible the way it is. And when it does happen, many times this will happen. When you find the answer, whereas you thought it was a wicked judgment, you came to realize that it is a righteous judgment. And then what happens? Why did I doubt God? Why did I doubt His word? Why did I not give thanks at that time? Why did I not give thanks even better than I should have all these years for His word? I should give thanks to God for His word. Even though in my own mind I have not figured it all out. Then finally verse 8. Finally in verse 8 he says I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. When he says it in verse 8 I shall keep your statutes. He says it in a sort of vow. in In a sort of solemn commitment. He is determined to keep God's word. He's not going to be Divided in his heart. He's not going to be looking here and there. And looking back. He's not going to be like Lot's wife who looked back. He's not going to be like the one who looked back. at the. Um, he, he's plowing and then he looks back. And Jesus said he's not fit for the kingdom of heaven. He's not going to be like that. He's determined. I shall. I am resolved. I shall keep your statutes. This is what he desires. He wants to do so. This desire... Begins in us upon our conversion, and it should remain in us, and we should seek for it and find ways to maintain that throughout our life. Then he calls upon God not to forsake him utterly. Do not forsake me utterly. By utterly, he means finally and completely. Don't forsake me. I know I need you, God, and I know I need you from beginning to end. So I pray according to your will. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began the work, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So do not forsake me utterly. I don't want to be finally and completely lost. And I also don't want right now... To experience any of that kind of loss, lostness. I don't want that. I don't want any, at any point in my life, for you to forsake me utterly. In fact, we ought to pray according to the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the same prayer. Do not lead us into temptation. I know many temptations will come... But don't lead me into them, Lord. Take me away. Keep me away from those temptations. And deliver me from evil. Deliver me completely from evil. This is what I want. This is what I desire. Here, he's depending upon the grace of God. Do not forsake me utterly. Is a way for him to say, Lord, I need your grace. I need your power. Without you, I can do nothing. I am like a tree. And I need you there. I need you there for me to bear fruit. For apart from me, as Jesus said, you can do nothing. This is the way we should be too. Let's pray like this. Let's have this mind. Let's have this mind in us to love God, to love His Word, and to delight in all the things of God. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to the flesh and the devil. Listen to... To the holy and righteous, inspired Word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Heavenly Father, give us the strength we need. Lord, in many cases, day by day, we need to be reminded. We need your people around us. We need the Word of God around us. We need to hear it, to read it, to memorize it, to understand it. Give us, Father, an insatiable appetite for your word. May we desire the word of righteousness and a hunger and thirst for righteousness. May it be true of us. May it be true of all of our loved ones. We pray, Lord, that this word, that this word would bear fruit in them 30, 60, and a hundredfold. Father, we pray that we will be different. We will understand that your ways are are higher than our ways, that we will understand that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Grant that we have this insight. In the name of Christ, Amen.